0: morning we are beginning a new series day called radical shift and the title of the message is a radical new beginning we're going to study the book of mark we're going to hopefully make our way all the way through this entire book it's quite a radical book Uh, mark is the most dramatic it's the shortest it's the sharpest biography that we have of the life of jesus christ the book of mark it's filled with suspense and it's filled with paradox mark puts us right in the middle of the action his favorite word is immediately it's constantly in a hurry if uh, if you kind of like you know sweet jesus if you enjoy you know jesus in the manger baby jesus all of that Mark isn't the best book for you to read because Mark totally skips all of that and he goes right to the action and adventure Jesus. He's in a hurry. If you like a Jesus who confronts you and challenges you, then Mark is the book for you. If you need sweet baby Jesus in the diaper, you should go to the Gospel of Luke is to where to read. So here we go. We're going to talk about this. Before I get into this, I just want to say, how about those redskins, huh? Huh? You know... Uh, every other team in the NFL should just roll over and die today because the Redskins are going to win the Super Bowl. And I just think that's absolutely awesome. All right. Uh, A little bit before I read the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1, I need to tell you to understand about Mark. So Mark is the guy, as you read through uh, the book of Acts, he's sometimes called John Mark. And in there, he takes a trip with Paul. And you all know Paul's a hard-charging guy. And something happened. Something happened on the trip because he left Paul. He went by, And Paul didn't like that at all. So our best guess is that Mark was slightly timid. So you might say, well, John, I thought you just said he's action and adventure Jesus. He's, I'm going to confront you. I'm going to challenge you. And you're telling me he's timid. He's walking. Well, here's the deal. Here's what you need to understand. When he left Paul, he ends up, and he's a cousin to Barnabas, which is another major player in the book of Acts. He connects with simon peter peter the leader of the disciples and if you know any history about the bible particularly through matthew mark luke and john you know that peter is bold he's brash i mean he's the guy that's cutting on off people's ears you know he's action and adventure guy right so what Mark does is he follows around Peter for an extended period of time, and he compiles the book of Mark is a compilation of Peter's sermons. So you hear, you hear somebody who is bold and brash and isn't in a hurry. He wants to cut to the chase. His favorite word is immediately, 41 times. He's a type A personality. That's not Mark, but Mark puts it together. So all of these are sermons that Mark is sitting through. You need to think about that as we go through And you'll see that. It'll come out as we go through this study. Mark chapter 1. This is the way it reads. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way? A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John Came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're going to unpack that because it's filled with meaning. So we're going to take a few moments this morning to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, speak to us today through your word, through, through Mark, through your book of Mark, where we see the real jesus when we focus on what jesus did help us to understand how radical all of this is in christ's name amen we'll talk about three things this morning radical words radical people and a radical calling radical words radical people radical calling the first thing radical words i'm gonna give you two words and the first word is this the beginning i know that's two words but that's your fill in the blank the beginning the beginning it's a very radical word because what What's happening here is we are being taken back to the beginning. It's reminiscent. The two most important events in the entire Old Testament are the creation of the world and the exodus. They cover everything. That dominates the entire Old Testament. Two of the most popular things, well-known things, the creation and the Exodus. And here, in the first eight verses, Mark takes us to these two things, the creation and the Exodus. He says, here's the beginning. What is he trying to say by this whole thing? Well, Adam and Eve, it begins in the garden. There's peace, there's harmony, there's harmony with God, there's harmony with each other, and there's harmony with nature. And then things go horribly, horribly along. Harmony is broken with God and it affects everything else. After that... No matter what they did, they could not find peace and harmony in their lives. They tried to. They tried desperately to, but they were just constantly empty. And we see that storyline run for thousands of years. It didn't matter if they had all the money in the world. It didn't matter if they had a marriage. It didn't matter about family. It didn't matter about achievement. It didn't matter about success. Nothing filled that void. Nothing could satisfy. The Bible says this. Isaiah 50, 55 says this. Come, God speaking, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Jeremiah says it this way. He says, God speaking again, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the saints. Who is going to satisfy? God is going to satisfy. What's being said here is actually only God can satisfy. This is what the Bible says. This is what studies show. Research shows this from today. Research shows this. We, we have stories of people. We've studied this. People who have everything. We look at them and say, you have everything. How can you not be fully satisfied with life? And the more people have, the less satisfied they are with life. So we just talked about Football a few minutes ago, and the Redskins won in the Super Bowl. We, we know from people who have won Super Bowls before, athletes who have achieved the highest level of what they ever wanted, they get done and they say, is that it? Is that it? I thought there was going to be more. We know this from celebrities who make it big in entertainment. They have fame. They have fortune. They have achieved their wildest dreams. And they get up there and say, is that it? Is this all?" there is if you don't believe what the bible says and you don't believe what all the research shows us that the more we have the less satisfied we are maybe you're going to believe this guy i got a song if you know it start rolling tape if you know this song please sing along but maybe you'll believe this guy he sings about it let's hear what this has to say do you recognize this song does anybody who sings this song does anybody know can you yell out does anybody know the words Uh, This is a great theologian right here. So that's excellent. I would sing, but I'm not a good singer. And what does he do? He tries, and he tries, and he tries again. But exactly again. Got the old man. Man's 150 years old, standing up, dancing. Whew. Man, that's awesome. All right, very good. I can't, I can't get no satisfaction. We learned this past spring Beyonce is, Beyonce is an amazing theologian. Remember in Smoking Hot? We learned about that. Now we realize that Mick Jagger is joining the theological elite, <laughs> right? He can't get no satisfaction. This is exactly everybody what Mark is after in the beginning. He says, You have to begin again. Things went horribly wrong. We're dissatisfied. We have to begin again. Money can't do it. Achievement, Nothing can do it. And what the Bible says is only God can satisfy. So he says, you know what? You can begin again. How many people this morning say, you know what? I need to begin again. I've I've taken some bad turns in my life. I need to begin again. Here's the message right off the bat. The Bible said, yes, you can. The world might tell you you can't. You might tell yourself you can't. But what the Bible tells us right here in the beginning of this radical, radical book is yes, you can. You can begin again. I love this verse, Revelation 21, verse number five. God's speaking. He, said, he who sits on the throne says this Behold, I am making all things new. Check that out. Listen, listen to this. We think when we've blown it, well, okay, that's it. Life's done with me. God's done with me. Whatever. I'm done. I used to hear this growing up all the time. You know what? It's all going to burn. You know, this all is going to burn. You know what that meant to me? I don't, you know, I, I never stopped and asked, well, what do you mean by that? But the w- way I took that, way I took that is, you know what? Everything about this world is going to be completely destroyed. And God's just going to like start all over again. But that's not true. See, Satan is a destroyer. God is a redeemer. Satan is a destroyer and a stealer and a thief according to the Scripture, God is a redeemer. If you're an environmentalist, you've got to love Christianity. Because the message of Christianity, God says, I'm going to come back and clean this place up. I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm going to clean it up. And I, you know what? I'd love to help you clean your life up too. If you need a new beginning, do you understand why Peter is preaching this? Did he need a new beginning in his life? Right? Didn't he need a new beginning? So when he goes to Jesus, he says, You know, you're God. And then two seconds later, he says, Jesus, you're not going to do this. You can't go to the cross. You don't know what you're talking about. That's wrong. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Or how about the time Peter goes in front of all the disciples? You know, they're all standing there and... Peter probably says, is bold and brash. He was all these clowns over here, Jesus, they're all going to turn their backs on you. But I'll never turn my back on you. And a couple hours later, he was cussing and screaming and saying, I don't even know who Jesus is. I never met the man before. Did he need a do-over? Here's the message of Scripture. The beginning. You can begin again. Whatever decisions you've made, relational decisions in your life, money decisions in your life, whatever spiritual decision in your life, the message here at the beginning is you can. Can begin again the year jubilee who's familiar with the phrase that that for the biblical concept the year jubilee anybody okay only a few people so let me tell you about it here it was an old testament very strong principle you need to you need to check this out this tells us a lot about god every 50 years for somebody who had gotten themselves into debt financially deep debt for somebody who had made decisions or gotten them whatever and they found themselves enslaved and so they were now a slave for somebody who had lost their property, their inheritance. Every 50 years, there was a year of Jubilee. You know what that meant? It means whatever debts you had were wiped out. And remember, however you enslaved yourself to a person, to a substance, to past history of bad decisions, however you enslaved yourself, year of Jubilee, you're free. That was God's command. Whatever property you lost, God said, you're going to get it all back. That is who God is. Don't you see why Peter is saying this at the beginning? Some of us here this morning are desperate for a radical new beginning in our lives. And Peter's message is God's message to us is this you can have it. That's the first radical word. Second radical word is this the gospel. Who's who's heard that? Who's that? Gospel. Anybody heard that word before? Gospel. I'm going to preach. I was in Bible college. Oh man, we, I can't wait to get out and preach the gospel. And I knew that word meant something powerful. I just couldn't understand what exactly it meant. And I have a more fuller understanding today, finally. All right, it means good news. Now, I've known that a long time. It means good news. But focus on the word news. The gospel is news. That's distinct and something we need to focus on here. Here's what it meant 2000. It was a word that was used that's the bible word this is a word that was used just in life 2000 years ago it meant that something has happened that has altered history something has happened that has completely altered history an inscription was found during the same time of Jesus and Mark writing this and it says this the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus and then it goes on to tell us how Caesar was born, lived, anointed king, and changed the entire world. And now the world, because the superpower of the world back then was Rome, now the superpower of the world, and now the world has been changed. There's been a difference. Life has been altered. When Persia invaded Greece and enslaved them and put them in bondage, there came a time when the Greeks rose up and they won two mighty battles. And after it was over, they had defeated and pushed out the Persian army. And this is what they do. This is what we're told. They sent evangelists throughout the entire countryside to tell everybody the gospel. The gospel. What was that? You are now free. You are now free. The work has been done. You have been set free. It is news. The gospel, the distinctive about the gospel, it is news. Now, I want to say something about religions, all right? And throughout this series, we're going to talk about different religions of the world. And I don't mean for a second, please do not get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh boy, Christianity, great. And obviously I am a Christian. And I don't, but I think it's really important. I'm not saying this in an arrogant way. I think that's, I, you need to hear me. I'm not saying this in an arrogant way. There are distinctives about Christianity that we must understand that are distinct and unique From every other religion in the world. Here's the first one I want to talk to you about today. And we'll get into more in the future. All right. Every religion in the world gives us instructions, commands, rules, and work about how to get right with God. They all, every single one. They give us instructions, commands, and rules, and things that we need to work on in order for us to get right with God. Christianity is unique. It gives us the news about what has already happened about how we can be right with God. Are there rules in Christianity? Yes, but they have an entirely different purpose. Their purpose, and we'll get much more into this in the future, their purpose is about how we can live better lives, smarter, wiser lives. They have nothing to do with how we get right with God. Absolutely nothing. The news has already happened. The battle's already won. The Greeks have already defeated the Persians, and Jesus Christ has already died on the cross. That battle is done. That is good news and entirely distinct now it says here in mark 1 prepare the way of the lord what's that reminiscent of everybody when kings would come to town right everybody had to prepare i heard somebody say uh you know in england they're british hate to bring up the british because that just makes Derek happy but uh, uh, when the when the queen comes to visit a town everything smells like fresh paint Right. So everything gets cleaned up. And back in these days, when the king would come, the roads were a mess. They had big old whopping potholes or obstacles in it or they had crooked places. And kings don't like to waste their time going around things they don't need to go around. So you would just work. And there was a few people who were happy the king was coming. But the vast majority of people were completely disgusted that the king was going to visit them. You know why? Because they had to work like crazy. They had to work and slave back Breaking work. Do you ready for things? So why should we be happy that King Jesus is coming down? To because that's just a bunch of work. Why would we be happy about that? You know why? Because it's prepare the way of the Lord. Ah, here's a clue. You know what the way of the Lord means? Well, here's what it means in the book of Mark, because every time he talks about the way of the Lord, he's talking about Jesus' way to the cross. Which means this: Jesus' way to the cross is where he's gonna work. For us, where he's gonna suffer and die for us, for our benefit. All we're gonna do is sit back and enjoy that good news about his labor on our behalf, because we can't do it for ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is what it says. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. And look what it says. What's it say at the end there? Not by what? Works. You don't have to work, work to clear the road to get yourself right with God. You just have to accept what Jesus Christ has already done for us on the cross. That's the gospel. Are there rules in Christianity? Yes. And they serve a purpose of making our lives better, wiser, smarter. But they have nothing to do with us getting right with God. Let me see if I can't illustrate it this way, all right? I know a guy and his wife talked him into getting a dog. And... (laughs) This dog, this dog obnoxiously barks all the time. Like, this dog barks all day and all night and in through the middle of the night. Like no, People can't sleep. People getting irritated around the house and frustrated. Dog is barking. That terrible piercing bark. Barking. It's almost like I'm there as I'm telling you this story. <laughs> Just screaming barking. And so, so this husband, this guy that I know, right, he gets up. He gets up and he says... What do you do? That dumb dog, would you shut the dog up? And the wife says, that's what dogs do. That's what dog, it's okay. That's what dogs do. This dog, this dog makes messes everywhere. Chews on shoes, chews on stuff, anything. Paper towel, loves paper towel holders. And chews them up, and there's just a mess everywhere. And the husband says, I don't like the mess all over the house. And the wife says, that's what dogs do. That's what, do that's okay. And in the midst of the obnoxious barking and all the messes, this wife goes and just loves on that dog, sings to the dog, strokes the dog, tells the dog how much she loves the dog, everything, cuddles. All this stuff is going on in the midst of all this ridiculous chaos and mess and filth that is going on. It's terrible, terrible thing. Now, I want to ask you this. What if the husband, what if the husband raised his voice in the house, right? What if he said, you know, I'm just loud. That's what I do. I'm a man. I'm loud. Would that be okay? I'm asking you, is that okay? No, it's, look at you. You just said no, just like that. No, you know, it's not okay. What if the husband left his dirty clothes all over the place? What if the husband with dirty dishes, just dirty dishes, is that okay? If you're a wife, is that okay? You didn't even hesitate. It's not Okay. This dog has favored status. This dog has done nothing to earn it. It doesn't work. It doesn't contribute anything at all to the house whatsoever. That dumb dog takes a 10-hour nap and gets up to go to bed for the night and walks around like the king, right? Why? Because that dog knows something. That dog's favored. And it doesn't matter all the messes, all the messes that the dog will make. That dog knows that dog will always be favored and has achieved the status that it will always have. All that husband wants to be is like that dog. I feel bad for that husband. My heart goes out for that husband. That dog has been accepted and approved. And all that husband wants to be is accepted and approved. Does that help? Here's the thing. We, by nature, by nature, we seek approval and acceptance. By nature, we do. It's strong. It's strong in us. We want to be approved and accepted, approved by our parents. And if we feel disapproval from our parents, it hurts us and hurts deeply. We want to feel approval from our spouse. We want to feel approval from our boss or our neighbor or a date that we've gone out with. We have a strong need for acceptance and approval. Here's the thing. We might not ever get that. In all of those categories, we might not ever get that. But I want to tell you the most important category of all. There is absolutely nothing, everybody. Not one thing that you can do today to be any more accepted by God or approved by God than you are right here, right now. All we have to do is accept what Jesus Christ has done for us as a gift that if you'll let that sink down that gospel if you'll let that sink down and you, it'll change the way you view yourself and you view life you'll walk around at peace you'll still have to deal with the other people in this life who don't accept you and don't approve of you but you know the most important person in the universe loves you and accepts you and has stamped you with approval that is gospel all right let's move on okay uh radical people radical people so we talked about two radical words let's talk about two radical people john the baptist we're going to get more into this guy in a little bit and what he does here but we've got to mention it here all right he's a radical radical person it says in isaiah 40 that god one day is going to show up in jerusalem god's going to show up in jerusalem But before he shows up, Malachi 3.1 says, I'm going to send somebody ahead of you. He's going to look a lot like Elijah. And this is why Mark, the only thing he tells us, he tells us about the clothing. I mean, of all things you can tell us, Mark, about John the Baptist, you tell us what the man's wearing. Why? Because it's distinctive. Everybody was looking for an Elijah-type person. And it's clear in the Bible that Elijah walked around, locusts and honey, leather belt, camel. John the Baptist looked just like him radical guy you, you can see why peter likes this guy right john the Baptist. john the baptist is bold and brass I mean, he's walking down the road just eating the head off of locusts and stuff and this is peter's kind of guy it's a tough guy all right why is he so radical what's so radical about baptism here's the, i'll ask you a question is john the baptist baptist like did he grow up in a baptist church <laughs> is that why we call him john the baptist because he was born on a baptist pew somewhere was baptism normal like he's calling everybody come out be baptized was that was that what they did never happened before this is why this is so radical ceremonial washing was the norm where i would go and i would get myself all scrubbed up symbolically showing that i'm myself scrubbed up scrubbed up i'm getting all squeaky clean for god and then i go and i get dirty again a lot of dirt back then people getting dirty all they didn't have showers like we had right, they're getting dirty. So they're scrubbing. They're like a doctor getting ready to go into surgery. Just getting squeaky clean. That's what they did. And they did that for themselves. They cleaned themselves. Here's the radical thing. John the Baptist comes along and he says, I have to baptize you. you. You can't make yourself clean enough. You can't save yourself. Now, this is really interesting. This is very humbling, actually. This is tremendously humbling. It doesn't matter how much sin I avoid in my life. doesn't matter how many times I go to church, how much Bible I read, how much prayer. I can't save myself. All those are great things to do. They all improve my life dramatically, but they can't, I can't save myself. Somebody else has to baptize me. So John says, come on out here. Totally the radical. They, this has never happened before, everybody. Says, I'm going to baptize you. Are you trying to save yourself? It's not going to work. This, again, totally unique about Christianity. There's no other religion in the world that says anything like this. Totally unique. Can't save yourself. God has to do it. He says, John's going to baptize you. He says, come out here. I'm going to baptize you in water. Now, what happens when you take a shower and you get all cleaned up? Well, you go out, you get dirty again. He says, John says, I'm going to baptize you in water. It's going to show this, somebody else has to do it. But Jesus is going to come along. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the water is going to clean my outside and it's going to be temporary. Jesus Christ is going to clean my inside and it is going to be permanent. It's going to be completely permanent. We have a lot more to talk about that. I just wanted to whet your appetite because Mark really delves deeply into this topic and it's going to be a very rambunctious Sunday when we deal with this in a few weeks. Let's move on. That's John the Baptist. Jesus, radical. This is extremely radical. I want to transport you as best I can 2,000 years ago and tell you why Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, walking amongst everybody is absolutely, insanely radical. Totally radical thing. It says in Isaiah 64, the prophet says, Oh God, would you rip open the heavens? Would you rend the heavens and come down here and that's exactly what jesus does we're told when he's baptized the heavens are torn open and that there's jesus christ the son of god god almighty here on earth jesus is so outrageously radical i'm going to tell you a number of reasons why first of all he's getting baptized he comes and gets with all the sinners god shows up on the side of a river and he doesn't come with pomp and ceremony and like here he comes no no jesus shows up amongst the crowds of sinners of dirty people god and stands in the midst of the mess and says you know what i love you so much that's true love when somebody it's one thing for somebody to stand over here right and this was their world this was their understanding god stands over here and says you dirty people get cleaned up christianity says that jesus comes over here god almighty and says i'm here with you i'm gonna get I'm, i'm just i'm gonna walk into the dirty water with you right in the midst of your mess this is unbelievable, everybody. God doesn't do... You understand? God does not do that. That is why this is so completely and utterly radical. We, People say... People say uh, today... You hear you hear this. Maybe you feel this sometimes. You say, you know what? 2,000 years ago? 2,000 years ago? I mean, culturally, intellectually, they could believe that Jesus was God come in the flesh. That's 2,000 years... I'm more sophisticated than that. All right? That was easy. I mean... Like primitive people 2,000 years ago, jumping over that barrier. But, you know, for me, I'm a Washingtonian. This is 2012, right? I'm here in Arlington County, the smartest county in America. Here I am. This is hard for me to believe. It's easy for them to believe over here. It's very, very difficult for me to believe over here. That is a, so just take it easy with me. Here's what I want to tell you. You're absolutely and utterly mistaken if you think that's the case. There, them over here believing that is so radically more difficult than it is for us today. Whatever I'm trying to say. Okay. I want to explain this. All right. Remember uh, last Saturday, not yesterday, but the week before we had that huge rainstorm. Does anybody remember that? Boom, just boom, just deluge, just pouring. We have a basement door that when we get like a lot of rain in a short amount of time, water kind of pools out there, and then it can back up into the door and get on the carpet. Don't like that because that creates work. I don't like to do work that's unnecessary. So uh, I called my house, and my son was home, I said, hey, can you check on that basement door? He said, yeah, 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 I'll I'll take care of him. I don't let any water get on the carpet. Okay, I got it. So I got home, and I said, Jonathan, what you know, how did it go? Any problems down the base? He says, I barricaded the door. You barricaded? Was it a Johnstown flood coming through here or something? You barricaded the door. How much water is coming through the door? I'm thinking, what did he put? He put a bookcase in front of the door. What did you do? I go downstairs, and what he had gotten was a beach towel, and he barricaded the door. <laughs> barricaded the door. Like, ain't nobody coming through that door. Man, no way. Uh, For us to believe that Jesus Christ is God is like going over top of this towel. For them to believe that Jesus Christ is God was like walking through a thousand pound bookcase. I want to show you why. I want to show you why. This is really, really important. First of all, we're told that Jesus Christ serves. We're told that God is a servant. That almighty God puts a towel over his arm and walks around and says, how can I serve you? That doesn't happen back then. Do you understand that that doesn't happen? That was not their concept of God at all, not close. We might talk about it today, but that's only the result of Christianity. Back then, foreign concept, crazy, ridiculous, nuts, radical, made no sense, doesn't register what it's all. Mark ten forty-five, key verse in the entire gospel. Mark says, Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. And that was just way too radical. We're told in the scriptures that God is wounded for us. You find me another religion where it talks about God being wounded for you. You find another religion that tells you that God dies for you, serves you, is wounded by you. Ancient biographies. This is a biography. Mark is a biography of Jesus Christ. You don't write biographies like this. You didn't do it. Jesus is the hero of the story. The hero of the story is rejected abandoned, forgotten, his followers don't recognize him, they let him down. You can't find an ancient biography from these times that is written this way. Why in the world would they write it unless it was true? It would be stupid to write it unless it was true. The only reason you'd write that is if it was true. This is radical. This is crazy. You know, in, 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 in Mark, the only people who are recognizing that Jesus is God are the demons. His disciples don't. This is a strange paradox. Judaism and Islam believe in a transcendent God. God is high above. He's far above. And here in Christianity, we see that God is eating with sinners. A very friendly act to do. All I'm trying to say to you is for us to believe that Jesus is God is like jumping over that towel. For them, it was like launching over top of a massive bookcase. Why would you write it? Why would you say it unless it is true? So let's think about this. You ever thought about this before? Jesus shows up. And he's like healing people right and left for three years. You got all these prophecies that God's going to show up in Jerusalem. Daniel gives us a timeline. Clearly, they know Daniel. They knew Isaiah. They knew all this stuff. Elijah's going to show up. John the Baptist. Elijah-like figure is going to show up. John the Baptist, right? He's going to prepare the way. The timeline's right from Daniel. Jerusalem's the right location. Everything's right. They know all this information. And that's why there were messiahs all over. Jesus wasn't the only person claiming to be the messiah. Hundreds of people. And those, you know why? Because they knew the prophecies. And so here he comes, the others aren't healing anybody, and Jesus is like emptying hospitals out. Now let's think about this. What if somebody showed up today in 2012, and we had prophecy saying in 2012 in Washington, D.C., the Messiah was going to arrive. Right, and there was going to be a person who came before him. He's going to say X, Y, and Z. And Jesus shows up in Washington D.C. in 2012, and he's like emptying out every hospital. Like people are coming in dead. They're you know they're leaving alive, and people coming in that can't see and can't walk and got all kinds of problems and skin issues or whatever. There's everything, and he just emptied. and he did that for three years straight. I want to ask you a question: Would you believe? Would you believe that that Jesus? That this is it? This is God Almighty? I mean, you're just sitting there, and people you know like you spent your whole life with, who, are, who have some crippling disease, and boom. And this isn't a magic show. This is people everybody knows. And would you believe? I would. And I bet you would, too, in a heartbeat. So why didn't they? You know why? Because it was so utterly radical. And the only reason to write the things they do about Jesus Christ is if it was true. There's no, there's no other context for it. It's radical, radical Thing to believe God. All right, I want to say one last thing look they wouldn't even say the name God you realize that they wouldn't even say the name God They wouldn't write the name God. They wouldn't say the name God say, Prepare the way for the Lord Yahweh prepare the way for Yahweh They wouldn't even say the name we say the name God all the time Not always in the best context right 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 you hear that all over the place Hinduism and Buddhism talk about the divine spark and people's like God's sparking all over the place I was at a wedding reception this past summer. I'm in a conversation with this lady. And somehow suffering came up. And she said, well, you know what? You know, I believe that God, God looks at our lives and he's entertaining himself with our joys and our triumphs and our suffering. And I said, I said, how does it make you feel about God, that God's just entertaining himself with your suffering? And she said, I am God. All right. That was the end of the story. This... uh, (laughs) All right, let's, uh, we're almost done. We're, all, we're almost, I, one last thing I want to talk to you about, all right? Radical calling. This is a radical calling. It's radical words, radical people, radical calling. What's the calling? Join me in the desert. Say what? Join me in the desert. I need you to join. John the Baptist is saying, join me in the desert. The desert is a prominent theme in the Bible. Please write this down. Simplify to satisfy. This is what the Bible says. This is what John the Baptist says. This is what Jesus says. Simplify to satisfy. Only God can satisfy us. Money can't do it. Success can't do it. Marriage can't do it. Kids can't do it. A spouse can't. Nothing can do it. Nothing can do it. Nothing can do it. Only God can satisfy. This is the message. God is saying here that less is more. It's a paradox which fits perfectly in the gospel of Mark. The desert. I want to tell you three things about the desert real quick. First of all, the desert was a place of new beginnings. The desert was a place of new beginnings. Israel got a new beginning in the desert. They had to leave Egypt. God couldn't meet with them in Egypt. They were too distracted, too much other stuff. They had to get out to the desert. God met with Israel in the desert. Jacob meets God in the desert. Moses meets God in the desert. The apostle Paul meets God out in the desert. It was a place of new beginning. Second thing is just what I've been saying a second ago. It's where you meet with God. Historically, when you talked about the desert, that was the place you went to meet with God. I want to meet with God. Israel met with God. You know, the cloud that hung over him during the day, and Moses met with God, and his face was all shining because he was hanging out with God. Where was that? It was all happening in the desert. Primarily, when somebody meets with God and somebody experiences a new beginning, they do it in the desert. They don't do it in the city. Jacob, Moses, Paul, Elijah, John the Baptist, it was the place to meet with God. Last thing I want to tell you about the desert this is important it's the place of enlightenment. It's the place of understanding. You're enlightened out in the desert. There's things that you can understand about life and God and everything comes together, harmony with God, that you can't understand in the city. You've got to get yourself to the desert to actually understand it because God speaks in the desert. He gives us understanding out in the desert. It's really important. Psalm 63. Now, I put this on there because my Bible actually has a little brief commentary before... David writes the beginning of the psalm, and it says this, a psalm of David when he was where? In the desert. And what does he say? He says, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now listen, don't raise your hands, but how many of us feel that way? Do we feel like I'm in the middle of a desert? I am, you ever been really thirsty? You can raise your hand on that. Anybody here been, like, when I was like, Uh, playing basketball and stuff like that on different teams. And the coaches were just insane maniacs trying to get you ready for the season. They work, you know, you can't. Like today, we give kids all these water breaks. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Man, back then, you'd go five hours running like crazy. No water? gonna need water. It's all about killing you. Anyway, times have changed. I don't know if it's good or bad. But anyway, you would just crave water so badly. This is how David's saying it. Do you feel that way? I don't feel that way. I want to tell you right now, personal confession. I don't feel that way. Here's what I know. If I ever am going to feel that way, it's because I'm in a desert. If I ever am going to feel that way, it's because I'm in a desert. And I've got to figure out how to get, my, get myself. I've got to take that challenge up figure out how I can put myself in a desert-like situation. As doesn't mean that I'm moving to the Sahara or something like that. What I'm saying is we can be in a desert right here in Washington, D.C. There are things that we can do to create a thirst i'm gonna give you three things real quick tell you a story and we're done all right three things number one read or listen to mark every day read it you know what the bible read, read the book of mark the bible creates a hunger and thirst i can remember one of my thirstiest times in my entire life i was in Wiesbaden, spot in germany i'd gotten out of high school i barely knew anybody over there i was away from Krista right so I, my heart was hurting already i was away i was there on my own you know what i had i had the bible that's all i had and i read it and all of a sudden as i read it every day every day i made a i'm gonna read this bible something started happening inside of me i started developing this hunger and thirst like i had never had before for god the bible creates a thirst like a pill that you take that just makes you incredibly thirsty that's what the Bible was like. It made me thirst. You want to create a thirst so you can under, we've got to get to this point, everybody, that we understand that only God can satisfy. If not, we're just kicking ourselves because it's not, it's not going to work. We all know this is not going to work. It's not going to work. So we've got to get thirsty for God so we can understand this. And the Bible is going to create that thirst. So you can read it or I put down, listen to it. Because some of us with our little iPhones and stuff like that, we have the little apps, and I just listen to the Bible all the time. It creates a hunger and thirst. Read it, listen to it. We're going to study Mark for months. Read a chapter a week, right? over and over again, chapter one. Second thing, request a meetup with God. When we spend time with God, it makes us more thirsty to spend time with God. When we encounter God, when we are in God's presence. Now, here's the thing. Ready? The number one thing, I read this study many years ago. This is really important, all right? The, the number one thing that people desire when they come to church, like all of you came to church today, whether it's people who always come to church or never, like I would never go to church. It doesn't matter. They polled all kinds of people. So they said to the people who never go to church, well, if you did, can you imagine with me if you did, why would you go? And both sides, both of those people said the same number one thing. I would go because I want to have a meeting with God. I want to encounter God. I want to experience God's presence. Look, there's nothing like experiencing God's presence. It'll change your life. There are people in this room who have had an amazing encounter with God, and they're never the same. They're never the same. Jacob was never the same after he met God. Moses was never the same after he met God. Paul was absolutely radically never the same when he met God. So here's the thing God's put on my heart. I want to raise up an army of people to pray that every single Sunday we would encounter God right here in this room. Every single Sunday. God has put that so strong on my heart. We're going to pray for one thing. So you see on your sermon outline, there's a little thing how you can sign up to be a follower of my, I'm going to start tweeting. I'm going to become a tweeter, all right? There's not going to be meetings to go with this. There's not going to be, I'm going to send a tweet out. I don't know. I'm going to be moved by the spirit on it. Maybe it'll happen once a week. Maybe it'll happen twice. It's not going to happen often, and there won't be long tweets. There's going to be something like, I'm hitting my knees that everybody would meet God on Sunday. And I'm going to ask you, numbers are everything when it comes to this. I'm going to ask you, if you're, if, you're, if you're with me on that, would you follow? And it tells you how to follow me. And We're going to pray, and we're going to pray, and we're we'll going to pray week in and week out for one simple, focused thing. We're not going to have potlucks. We're not going to gather. We're not going to do it. You know what I'm saying? You can be in a bar. You can be in a bathroom. You can be in a bedroom. You can be out on the bike path. Anywhere you are, you get that little tweet, little tweet, and just say, bam, God, Give everybody an encounter with you. That's all we're talking about. I want to encourage you to do that. Because once we, once we encounter God, nothing's the same. Last point, everybody. I know I'm done. All right? Relax your schedule for a season. Relax your schedule. So throw the pick up there of the desert. Show, let's look at the desert. All right, look at that. There's not a whole lot going on out there, is there? Uh, there's no movie theater out there. There's no water. There's no food. There's no people. There's no entertainment. We are really busy people, and the thing that is unique about the desert is there's not a lot going on there. I'm asking you to consider, I know you can't cut everything out. Here's how you get in the desert. Can you, for the next three months, until we get to Christmas, try to relax your schedule, spend a little more time in the Bible, spend a little more time in prayer, consider signing up for a community group Bible study? Is there, are there travel plans that maybe you could like curtail for the next three months? Is there anything that you could do for the next three months to put yourself into this? For three months, is there anything that you can do? Relax your schedule. Now, I've already said the desert is a place. I want to end with this story. The desert is a place of enlightenment and understanding that will change our lives. Um, this guy I want to tell you about in conclusion was born in 1955. Okay? He's born in 1955. Uh, his parents were, were not married, his mother was from uh, Wisconsin. And his father was Syrian and was there in Wisconsin studying for a while. And the mother's dad was radically against the relationship. And she got pregnant before they got married, and the father said there's no way they're getting married. She was sent to San Francisco to do a closed adoption with a doctor that somehow they knew. Her only stipulation when she said, okay, I'll let the kid be adopted, whatever parents this kid goes to, they have to be really well-educated people. And so this kid was lined up to, uh, to go to a couple where the, the, the husband was a lawyer, right? And at the last minute, they decided they didn't want a boy. They wanted a girl. So they didn't adopt. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't adopt. And uh, th- this boy ends up going to a college, uh, to a high school drop, high school dropout. And he's very strong. He's a very strong-willed kid. He's very determined, he's a very smart kid. You know, he's very eager. He's very demanding. He ends up himself making it through high school, but dropping out of college. And he's kind of a hippie, never wore shoes. He went around everywhere not wearing shoes. He drops out of college. He takes a pilgrimage to uh, India. He volunteered on a communal when he came back to the States. He volunteers on a communal apple farm. And in his early 20s, he's broke and he's wandering around and decides that with a buddy of his, he's going to start building computers in his parents' garage. And by the time he was 25 years old in 1980, he was worth $250 million. Let's show the picture of this guy who I'm talking. There he is. Who is that guy? He got ousted from Apple computers because he was Very difficult to get along with. Very difficult. But when he came back, he built the most valuable company on our planet today by far. That company, some people say, controls our entire stock market. Apple computers. This renegade guy. He was a raging vegan. Raging. He would go on bouts where he would only eat carrots to where people said he actually turned orange. He went on bouts where he'd only eat apples. That's one of the reasons he called it Apple Computers. He believed that if you were a vegan and your diet was right, that you did not have to wear deodorant and you only had to take a shower one time a week. He was utterly wrong. (laughs) And and, and everybody knew about it. when he's running this company and he's worth $250 million and he's such a perfectionist and he's never satisfied, he had a big old, whop- well, he had a mansion. It wasn't a whopping mansion. He could have bought anything he wanted, but he bought just a regular run, you know, run-the-mill mansion. Okay? <laughs> uh, but he, he, couldn't, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't put furniture in it. You know why? He couldn't decide what furniture he liked or he couldn't figure out what's the purpose of furniture. When he finally got married, they argued about what dishwasher to buy for months. Because he was such a perfectionist, and he was just never, never, ever satisfied. He still, he still, when he was running Apple, would go around barefoot all the time. And you know what he did to relieve him stress, because he's always stressed out? He soaked his feet in the toilet. Yes, this book, you should get, it's an amazing book about Steve Jobs. He soaked his feet, and then he put those feet, those toilet feet, up on the boardroom and the table. This is what the guy would do. He was a trip. Bill Gates, he could not stand. This is what he said about Bill Gates, Bill Gates is the most unimaginative person I've ever met. He had hor- they, would, they would go to computer shows, and they'd be in the hallway screaming at each other. He said, if Bill Gates just one time would have dropped acid, he would be a great person. <laughs> right, now, I want to tell you the point of my story, because this this, there is a point to this. I just didn't keep you here for these few extra seconds to tell you this. He strongly believed in LSD, and I'm not trying to sell you on LSD. Just so we're clear. But I want to read you something he said, and he says it a lot in this book, but I want to read you one part, okay? He said, I came at a magical time. This is Job speaking. Our consciousness was raised by Zen and also by LSD. Even later in life, he would credit psychedelic... This is the guy that before he died ran the most powerful company in the world, all right? Even later in life, he'd credit psychedelic drugs for making him more... ready. Enlightened. Enlightened, which Bill Gates is not, in his opinion. Taking LSD was a profound experience. One of the most important things in my life. LSD shows you that there's another side to the coin. And you can't remember it when it wears off, but you know it. Why am I talking to you about LSD? This man, who was brilliant... This man who was brilliant and ran the most powerful company on the face of the planet is telling you, you need LSD to be enlightened. And I want to tell you this, John the Baptist is coming along and he's telling you with everything he's got, you have got to get yourself to the desert so you can be enlightened by God. Does that seem crazy? This guy's promoting LSD and John the Baptist is promoting you meeting God out in the desert. I don't think John the Baptist is so crazy. I can't encourage you anymore. And to say, if you just meet God in the desert, you will be enlightened and never be the same. Think about reading Mark every single day and developing a hunger. Relax your schedule. Make this challenge come true in your own life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, that your word makes us thirsty. God, there's all kinds of people, some of them extremely smart and successful, that are telling us we need this and we need that in order to be enlightened. But, Father, you come along and say only you can satisfy. Only you, God, help us, Lord, to get ourselves to the desert where we can be enlightened and have understanding from you. In Jesus' name, amen.